Welcome to the Woman's Own Book Club Guest Author of the Month. Masculine She Meets Humanity is the title of a book that's taken clinical psychologist Dr. Shahida Janssen a very long time to release. Subtitled An Adapted Model of Masculinized Psychotherapy, it began around 25 years ago with an unexpectedly all-male group therapy session. Well, the work and research that followed has challenged and fascinated Shahida ever since. So we invited her to the Woman's Own Book Club as guest author to tell us more, tell us more about herself and her work. But first, she gave us an impassioned intro into her methodology using a series of cards. This is actually, well, we could call it the self that is represented by plural energy centers. So contrary to most people who start with gender as gender, for most people of the global south, whether you go to Japan, China, the Incas in South America, the whole of this uh, African continent, whether they call themselves Arabs or Africans, we see the self as relational. But what very few people understand is that even inside the self, it is intersectional. So there's multiple or plural energy centers. And so what I had done, in fact, before I started even to specialize with men, for me it was very problematic the way I was socialized as a psychologist to start with small talk so that I can get to the presenting problem. I find it offensive as from somebody from the global south because where we come from, from most of the people who's represented from cultures here, to start with a problem is highly problematic. <laughs> and so I had to find a way in which I could start the therapeutic process that is affirming of who you are. So this is, was my very practical way of asking Ungubani, who are you, before I ask you, what is the problem? But the one thing that I just want to say about this plural energy centers, this understanding of what the self is, is that it went through several names. Uh, the most recent name, I've called it the Afro-Eastern model of the self. I sometimes call it the Afro-Arab model of the self. Sometimes I call it the Ubuntu self. I had first gone to my own culture to see what does my culture say about the self. And then when I went to the Kosa tradition to understand, and then I saw it was actually completely the same. And that for me was very interesting because historically speaking, the Arabs are new kids on the block. I mean, there are civilizations who are thousands and thousands of years older. And of course, we know now that life actually started here on the African continent. And so the African tradition is in the first tradition. So I just wanted to highlight that so that I did not culturally appropriate, because I think that's important, that when you speak about other people's cultures, it must also come from where you are. So in other words, we are energy. We are different energy centers. And the body, umzimba, is an energy center. But it's an energy center that comes from the central energy in us, which is the largest and the foundational energy. And local traditions call this umoya. And so literally, umoya means wind. But when I refer to her, I say umoya, the u is her, it's a human. And so she is a spirit. I wanted to emphasize more the fact that we are so dynamic. You can't contain us. 
Well, as you can imagine and as you can hear, there's a lot more to be explained on Shahida's methods and the workings of the male mind. But we persuaded her first to step back a little and tell us about her own entree into the world of psychotherapy. Well, I was a nurse first. So I was a nurse and a midwife. I used to catch babies. That's where I started. That was my first profession. It was too regimented. Obviously, it didn't fit with me. I then studied part-time through UNISA. I think I also got into nursing because growing up in a township, there was no money to study. So nursing was one of these things that you could do where you got paid. So I also just want to put that context. Then I started to study through UNISA while I was a nurse. And then I qualified. I left Cape Town and I got to Joburg. I spent about five years there because I studied full-time at UNISA. And that was also interesting because when I went to Joburg, I met Africa. (laughs) It's very interesting. Then I came back and then I was a qualified clinical psychologist. And I hated it. Why? Because I couldn't see myself reflected in it. I think that it was really a problem, to the point that I then took a job as a researcher, and I would introduce myself as a researcher and not as a psychologist. So that was a very difficult time, and I think it was because the profession was so... uh, What is the word now? Was it white? Was it male? Was it what was no, it? It was it was white female. I used to feel very lonely. I still do in the profession. So I couldn't find a place, you know, where I belong. And I have to tell you, it's interesting that Professor Mfetani is here, Sakumzi, because I remember it was only when I got to UWC and I started to because there was no group therapy and I'm like, okay, but UWC calls itself this very historical, this very black university, but it was business as usual. So this is what I want to say about the whiteness of the profession. Nowadays, everywhere you go in psychology departments, it's black, but they do the same thing. So I think we must be very careful about whiteness, and especially as black people, we must be very careful when we talk about whiteness, because there's a very complicated paradoxical relationship. One in three black women use skin lightness in this country, and so we've got a very complicated relationship with whiteness. I just wanted to add that in, that the whole issue of race and whiteness, uh, we must speak to it in a nuanced way. I hope I did that in the book. No, you did, and I just want to come back to something else that you said previously. You said there was no group therapy, and one of the reasons that group therapy was born under your watch was because there wasn't capacity to give individual counselling to all the students who needed it. So you thought, well, let's get them together. Have I interpreted that right? And it's interesting, you know, uh, this issue with capacity, because there's two problems universally with psychotherapy. The problem is there's what they call a credibility gap, and then there's a treatment gap. So the credibility gap means that all over the world, universally. There is a disconnect between how mental health professionals think about and talk about problems and the way ordinary people across the world think about their mental health problems. So there's that credibility gap. That's also where this comes in, because this brings a different language. Now, that credibility gap leads to the treatment gap. So all over the world, even in your first world Western countries, a lot of people who can access mental health care don't. Mm -hmm. In fact, the vast majority of people 
don't go to therapists. Look, I'm a product of therapy. I've had decades of it with white therapists, white female therapists. But there is a credibility gap and there is a treatment gap and it's universal. So I think that's what I want to say so that to contextualize the problem, we have a problem. And so, of course, then, when I started to run the groups, again, the people who probably changed the trajectory of my future, because now I'm an insider, I can now identify as a psychologist. And so don't say after me because now they're my family and I I would take offense when certain things get said. So I criticize psychologists then as an insider now. So when I started to run the groups, before the men's groups were born, the people who were most excited about the groups were the clients, not my, not my peers. And so when the men's group started, when I was only... Because I'm, you know, I'm very much, I'm a change agent. I come into a place and I want to turn everything upside down. So I think I was just six months where I was head of student counseling at UWC. And so I looked after the, the students and I had master's level psychology interns that I used to supervise. And I was busy marketing for a group because this was very new. And there were two groups that I had to teach and that I had to orientate and get into it. It was the staff and it was the clients. The clients were by far, they, they lapped it up. The group that I struggled with was the staff. So there was one day, I think this was now six months or so into my new job and I was marketing for a new group. And so it was the first day of a new group, first session, so I'm waiting for people to arrive. So boys came, more boys came, more boys came, and I'm like, okay, now I... So also being an early adopter, right, I changed very really quick. So I facilitated the group, thinking while I'm doing it, you know, I've got to, like, do something else here because these are just boys, you know? And then I went to my supervisor at the time. Some of you may be familiar with Willem de Jager. He's probably the most um, experienced group therapist, if not in South Africa, so he was my supervisor at the time. And I said to him, Willem, you know, there was only boys who came to the group. And he said, and so? And I said, well, I loved it, and I want to do this. And he said, go for the Shahida. And that's actually how the men's groups were born, by accident. And then I then taught myself, went to the literature with the boys that used to come to the groups, and then I wrote my PhD. And so my PhD was about the emotional experiences of participants of men's groups. So that was, you know, when I wrote up there. Can I stop you again there? Because that already flies in the face of all the stereotypes. You know, guys don't go to therapy. They're not interested. They're not going to talk. And yet they were all, all the guys who turned up. Had it been an all-girl group, it would have been very different. Had it been a mixed group, it would have been very different. So... Did you have to alter your modus operandi very much from if it were mixed and if it had been all girls, those three different paradigms? Yes. I think what happened, actually, with the boys, the men coming, because I also ran girls' groups, 
And I also love when I facilitate a group with women, it's different. I could be more tactile. I, you know, there's, there's a different intimacy that I have with girls. Just to, to, just, just to elaborate, to if it were a mixed group, how do you then deal with that? I don't do mixed groups. I've never done it. L- let me explain then what happens when women leave the scene in therapy, because I think that's important. So the minute, I'm talking about the therapeutic group now, the minute women leave the room, what happens is that the men who are left behind, they are immediately relieved from the socialized scripts of how they ought to behave in the presence of women. So that's the first thing that happened. Once they are relieved from the socialized scripts, because it's universal. Men are socialized to behave to women in certain ways. Then it means then the mirror then turns inward. So then they are then free to start engaging with themselves because they no longer have to perform for women, impress women, provide for them, protect them, or whatever the performances men get into when when they're in the presence of women. But the most important thing for me that I witness when women are gone is that the men can then engage their feelings and sensitive issues consistent with their own worldview, with their own values, with their own practices. You must understand, I also love working with women. Women go into feelings quick and deep. They go right in. With men, there's no difference in terms of the actual capacity to process feelings. I don't think there's a difference. But what they do is that they take a time or you put the engine in a room and they poke here and they poke there. And sometimes there's a very serious, sensitive matter that we discussed and then somebody cracks a joke. It's not a defense necessarily. It's the way they do emotion regulation. So when the guys are all together, they can then deal with the feelings and the issues according to the culture, according to the way they feel. The guys must correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong. <laughs> this can come in now. Right? So, yeah, so I think that's for me, yeah. that is the difference. When you have a mixed group, what I've noticed is that men then hold back. Not just that they hold back. I think women, they run and they dive. And so you can see the the difficulty that you will have just to manage because I have, for me, everything that we do as human beings has got a cultural component. Upper-class Jewish, it's a cultural. You know, Catholic, nominal, it's a culture. All of us, all of us come from somewhere. It's just I, I wear mine like a proud badge, but all of us come with a worldview, come with values, come with stuff that unconsciously we bring to bear on a situation. Uvalapi, where do you come from? So but, for me, but can, let me let me just interrupt again. I'm sorry to keep doing this to you, but you said something very pertinent earlier. You said that you can't just come in and present with the problems because nobody's. It's too much. It's too quick. Too soon. So what you do, from what I understand from the book, you employ this method of there's the little me. And the big me, and the little me is about you, but the big me is about what culture am I from? So when you're dealing with men's groups, do you try to find out 
who they are, where they're coming from, what their culture is as a man before they get onto who they are as a child. So now I want to speak to this um, psychologist in the room. So psychodynamic uh, theory. So we know, and cultures, all cultures probably have names and words for, for this, is that when you put people together in a group, who they are will fall out in the room. Remember now, when I was at UWC, you have students coming for therapy. They are hungry. They are poor. They're struggling with where to live. So you have multiple levels of trauma, and you have a population that actually is not stable enough for psychotherapy. So you stay away from exploring too deeply and too much, even though all the deep stuff, actually it falls out in the room because it's the minute it becomes comfortable and it becomes warm and safe, people's unprocessed trauma will fall out into the room. But it was a very difficult dance that you do, and many therapists who are on campuses will be able to, to talk about this, how difficult it is to walk that tightrope between the socioeconomic stuff, which psychologists pretend is not part of therapy, and the real therapy, which is like the deep psychological stuff. How do you walk the tightrope between those two stuff? So I think what I was doing was a way in which I could make it okay to do therapy, but I put lots of structures and walls and stuff up in the room so that they could bring up some of the issues, but but I guess we also firm up the space so that not too much falls out into the room. I'm not sure if I'm... Um, no, you're unpacking it very nicely. One of the other things that you refer to is, is exploring what it is to be a good man. What is it to be a man? And I suppose in exploring that, it would help a guy try to understand who he is within that. Can you define what is a good man? What, how does that come out? differently and in so, different cultures. And so recently in the interview on Cape Talk, I said that there isn't such a thing as masculinity. There is only masculinities. So this is where the concept of Omoya, again, is very useful as a concept. All you have with people is a whole lot of energy. So even masculinities as energies. And so wherever you go, there would be a slightly different type of masculine energy. So when men come into the room, they bring with them diverse notions of what it means to be a man. But what happens, I've noticed with young men on campus, for example, they're very sensitive, actually, to the ideas that people have about them. And I think one of the sad things for me is how we speak about men in South Africa. And young men feel totally ashamed of being men. So they, they speak about that, okay? Can you imagine the things we say about men? Dogs and... Somebody was commenting, you know, I was saying to her how difficult it is when I go on a radio interview because it's patriarchy, it's toxic masculinity, and all these tropes, you know, that it doesn't really also bring us anywhere. So the short answer is, I'm not representative of women who looks like me or dresses like me. So I don't think there's any man. No two brothers are the same. I think what we need to get used to is dealing with fluidity, with complexity, with the layeredness. And so 
men are so diverse and so different. So every time I go into a men's group, I'm quite nervous because I don't know what I'm going to get. You've used the word fluidity, and I'm sorry to bring this up, <laughs> but we sit at where we sit in South Africa in the world at the moment, we're talking about his and hers, men and women, and in between there's a whole range. A lot of young people are dealing with transitioning, homosexuality, there's all sorts of issues. Is that something that you can deal with in a group situation? Often in a group there's a gay man in the group. And I find that the way the group process plays out, it's very similar for heterosexual and for gay men. Most men, because gender is so fluid and masculinity is extremely malleable, the psychoanalyst Michael Diamond, he says men have a lifetime to become increasingly male. So the whole life a man can redo and rework the way he feels about his manhood. So what I find with gay men and straight men in a group is that most of the men in South Africa suffer from severe father hunger. And so that is why you put men in a group, because then in a non-erotic way, non-sexual way, they can then get some of that hunger appeased in a men's group, because the father hunger, even among girls in this country, is severe. It is terrible. I really hope there are people in this room who would want to connect with me so that we can, we have to do something about the problem in South Africa. We have so many problems in South Africa, and perhaps another one of the stereotypes or tropes, as you call them, is that we, t- we tend to sort of say, oh, well, the kid's got no dad, you know, and so he's, he's a lost cause, and the mum's a single mum, she's done her best to bring him up, and all the damage that goes on in a child, which is one of the reasons, and I'm, I might be speaking out of turn here, but one of the reasons why there's so many gangs, because apparently young guys very often go to a gang because they're looking for their tribe, which is why... One of the reasons why so many men go to war, I might be wrong, but um, I've just been watching a movie called All Quiet on the Western Front and all these guys just can't wait to get into war because they're all part of a, a pack. Is there something about a man, I'm not, which doesn't say that women don't, but is there something about a man's need to be part of a group is, or is it a family substitute? So now the, the, this is where I st- why I start here. And this is where I find some of the African understanding of the self is so useful. The self is never separate. And so what does it mean? It means that by the time I'm five, I have a worldview. If I take a blonde, blue-eyed little boy of two and he ends up with a rural Zulu family, deep rural KwaZulu Natal, and he grows up with it. By the time he's five, he will have a Zulu worldview. And so I don't think we understand the extent to which we are defined socially. And that was my biggest problem in psychology because remember psychology is just, what, over 100 years old. It was born in colonialism, so it was born on the tropes of individualism and separateness. And so they would talk to you about, I remember undergraduate, the signs of a mature person is autonomy and individuated. It was very foreign for me coming from where I come from. So 
men are human. And so men define themselves through the other just like women. So there's this notion that men are from Mars. It's not true. That doesn't mean I am... You can see I also respect the difference, the fact that men may be different in terms of the way they... But fundamentally, men are people. And so when Professor Kupano Ratele was my supervisor, and he thought it was a joke when I used to say to him, I'm first going to define that men are human because the way we speak about men is as if they are of a different species. Rodents. And of course, that's a lot to do with race. And so, because I, as a black woman, in the modern colonial you know, regime of gender, I am not defined part of the concept of women. So it's a little bit complex here. You can't separate race from gender, not in a Southern African context. So there was one more thing where I wanted to go, and again I want to go to the psychoanalyst. So because we also keep on seeing men as separate from women. So the psychoanalyst, again, Michael Diamond, he talks about the revised theory of early gender identity development. Previously, it was thought that for a boy, young boy, to feel like a man, he has to reject everything that is feminine. Michael Diamond, in his theory of revised, he says... Nothing could be further from the truth. All over the world, whatever culture you are, urban, rural, the first person who receives the boy child is a woman. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what race you are. And so the first attachment that the baby has, the baby boy has, is with the mother. So as she gazes into the eyes of a newborn baby boy, in that exchange, because we know most of attachment is unconscious. And so that unconscious exchange between the mother and a baby boy, in that moment, she affirms his difference from her because unconsciously she's conveying his difference. Now imagine in a country like South Africa where a vast majority of women and mothers have got unprocessed male, male-inflicted trauma. And so in that exchange between the mother and the baby boy, can you imagine how that trauma intervenes? And the difficulty for little boys who are born into a country where gender-based violence is as rife as it is. So how can we, why do we separate boys' mothers and boys and, and we think men are separate and women? That is why cultures separate the genders. In the Kosa tradition, Ulwaluko, that's a taboo. Women don't go near. In my own tradition, we separate because it understands that there is no separation. Do you see the paradox? Because you must be able to understand that most cultures see reality the way I understood the self now. It's paradoxical. It's on a spectrum. (laughs) You know, the opposites are there. The dance of the opposites and all of that is there. So they separate because they understand 
that it is actually together. Does it make sense? Yeah. I get some frowns. Yes, okay. there's, there's, yeah. there's so many questions. I can feel the questions <laughs> coming from the, from the audience. And my question, we have to talk about gender-based violence because we're in South Africa, we can't not talk about it. But I, very often one sort of thinks of men, gender-based violence. You know, the two go hand in hand like a hand in a glove and, you know, this is just so not okay. But the thing about gender-based violence, I suppose we have to sort of interrogate what causes gender-based violence. And one of my questions is that men are subjected to so many challenges in their life, not least right here, right now in South Africa, where unemployment is through the roof. A lot of guys who may have an inclination to look after their family, to look after their partner, to look after their children, are not able to do so because they don't have a job, they're poor, there's all sorts of stuff going down. So can we put part of the blame on men's frustration for gender-based violence, or has there always been gender-based violence? I mean, what, how are we to deal with gender-based violence and no, men? We need to step right back in our definition of violence and aggression. We need to understand that female violence, is that violence? The relational violence of women that doesn't get noted, that doesn't go on court roles, is that violence? Just explain so, female violence. So what I'm saying, I'm not denying the fact that the violence that we are seeing in South Africa, I mean, it is, like the one author says, only countries who are at war have got higher rape statistics. It's a pandemic. But I think that there is a problem with, a, with our definition of violence, that our problem with violence is that we reckon something as violent when it is physical, when it can be seen. I think women are capable. In fact, I think women put men to shame when it comes to certain forms of violence. So I think that I think we need to have a different conversation totally about violence. In this country, for example, the levels of inequality, the levels of stock, haves and have-nots, is that violence? Sure, I think it's very violent, but we don't talk about that as violence. So I think we need to have a different conversation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so many conversations, and one really doesn't want to sort of conflate gender-based violence with masculinity or even masculinities, because it's not the case. Let, let me also say to that, then, over the last 500 years, what we have also done, and this, again, I'm going to my model of why do I start with humanity? I'm not saying this is the truth. This is my model of, of how I first affirm that you are human and the complexity that comes with, with being human. Over the last probably 500 years, we have constantly found ways to identify groups that lack humanity, and then we commit whatever genocide against them. How was the Jews defined that rendered them suitable to be put into gas chambers? Because their humanity was questioned. We said that they are not human. Gypsies, the disabled... There are so many of the top psychologists who were part of the eugenics movement that would find certain people shouldn't procreate because they, some of, they're somehow lacking. So the latest group, I think, because when we say men and violence, do we mean black men? So there's another group now that we've defined. They lack humanity and they are gross and violent and so 
gender-based violence has that face. So it's more of what we've been doing over the last yeah. few hundred years. I'm not denying the violence, please, yeah. you know. Yeah. I, that is why I'm doing this work, and that is why I'm hoping these people would come out and say, I, I would want to help with this. Yeah. Yeah, uh, no, I, I, nobody's denying the violence, um, but one doesn't want to equate men with violence necessarily. But I've two, got two last questions. One question is somewhere in the book you say that men equally have emotions. You know, very often boys don't cry, you know, they don't feel anything, they're not in touch with themselves. All those sort of stereotypes, once again, clearly men have emotions. So does it take longer to chip away, um, if you imagine an ice pick, does it take longer to chip away to get to them? or are they just there? Are we just using the wrong methods to get them out? Okay, so we... I'm going to respond to that with a counter-question. Where are the spaces where men can go? I want to know that, you know? And I, I, I'm, I'm going to give you quite an, an example. I was... When I was at UWC, there was a guy who wasn't a student, but his friend who was in my men's group brought him to me. This guy was having very serious fantasies about rape, about murder. And when he went to a doctor or some place to go and they called the police. Okay, he was in distress about, so it was ego dystonic. He was disturbed. This was a man who was raised by a mother. He still had the a mother who threw him with a knife when he was 10. So he comes from enormous um, violence and uh, uh, trauma. And so I could see that the, obviously the, the fantasies that he was having was the unprocessed trauma that wanted to be expressed. But he had nowhere to go. He couldn't afford a therapist. You know, I actually think we must really stop talking about men until we decent enough to provide a space. Yeah. Then keep quiet. Yeah. If you're not prepared to get your hands dirty, and you don't have to be a therapist, you don't, you, but we need all kinds of resources yeah. so that we can create spaces for men to come together and engage. Not just about problems, but where men can come together and talk about their manhood or yeah. something. That's a very thought-provoking answer, and I want to give you a round of applause <laughs> because I wasn't joking when I said, you know, here we have women's zone. Where is the men's zone? We can't start it, but we could. Maybe we need a brother organization. Um, my last question, though I have a million more, my last question really is, what about you? This has, must have taught you so much, but the point is that there you sit with a group of guys, and here you are, a woman, a black woman, a Muslim woman, all those things. How do you put yourself in that situation? How does it... Is it problematic? It's very risky. <laughs> but how do people respond to you then? But let me just say, you know, when I go to conferences to present on this work, often the conference delegates are more interested in me as a woman doing this work than they are with the work that I'm doing. I think there's often been concerns about my safety because I express that I'm comfortable with black men in black male spaces. So I must tell you, even when I went into the prisons, uh, Paulsmoor prisons, and I was working with quite serious sentenced prisoners, uh, murder and all of that, I found that, and this is why I'm hooked on this, 
I think that human beings are really connected. We feel each other across language, across race, across culture. We feel each other. And so when I walk into a group of men and male criminals, even, by the time I have sat down, they have sized me up. They have decided, okay, I think this is something we can listen to or this is something we can benefit from. Because what is the universal human language? And that is why I start here, is that regard for you as a human. That irrespective, because I was quite taken with this one woman who said to me, she, she asked me, how do you bring masculinity together with humanity? And then she listed the kind of things men do. And so I said to her, but you can't give what you don't have. I come from dysfunction, but I don't come from emptiness. So I grew up with gangsterism, and I grew up with alcoholism and all that. But I was given a socialization that if I meet you, even if you're drunk, and you know we all have that Uncle A.B. that gets so <laughs> drunk. And me and my mother would, and she, my mother would have just said, this is now in Hanover Park where I grew up on the Cape Flats. So she would have just complained there to Auntie Katie opposite the road. Uncle A.B. a severe paralytic drunk. When I walked past Uncle A.B., she would shout, did you greet Uncle A.B.? Then, did you say Uncle A.B.? They said, Mommy, is drunk. Are you drunk? So what I was taught in that very, not always so very didactic way, was that every human being has got an inherent, inviolable dignity. Irrespective of what you have done, when I meet you, and you will see this in our local traditions, the way they go and the way they greet you, and so it gives me a sense of proportion when a man in, appears in front of me, irrespective of what, look, the law must take its course. I used to say to the psychologist on campus when there's been a brawl or a fight or whatever, why do you assume he's coming here for therapy? He must, the police must come. Sometimes the best treatment for a young man is to feel the consequences of his actions. Therapy is not a replacement for morality. So the law must still... But the point that I'm making, and I think this is the, I hope this is the central point that runs through the, the book, is that the point of departure is that you are human. That's it. Mm. The rest, we're going to negotiate. Mm. Well, if ever there were a point at which to close the conversation, I think that's it. Dr. Shahida Janssen, thank you so much. It's been absolutely fascinating. And thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.